It's Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Polk Runyon. And tonight we review and discuss the controversial 2011 book, Caesar's Messiah by Joseph Atwell. The subtitle of this work is The Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus. And Atwell presents convincing evidence that the Flavian family of the Roman patricians, with the help of renegade Jewish historian Josephus, may have done exactly that. Atwell proposes that the Gospels were written by members of the Flavian family to make the Jesus story correspond with Titus's conquest of Judea and Jerusalem. He presents quotes from Josephus backing this up. Now, this will be a hard book to read for fundamental Christians, but not for Gnostic Christians. Atwell holds off his imperial timeline until page 320, keeping the gospel keeping the casual reader unaware that Christianity was flourishing and perishing in Rome long before the Gospels were written. So even though he may be correct about Roman influence on the Synoptic Gospels, he is wrong in assuming that Christianity began as a Roman false flag operation. Perhaps the most shocking event described in the book is the alleged origin of the Christian Eucharist. Josephus recounts a wealthy Jewish mother killing and eating her infant son and offering part of him to her neighbors, saying that he will be, quote, a myth unto the world. Of course, Atwell is nice enough to suggest that Josephus wrote the dialogue, but has still sent me for a copy of my Josephus to make sure that he wasn't exaggerating. Well, he wasn't. So join us for an hour exploring gaslighting and false news in the first century. Let's start off here by reading uh, Atwell's introduction, a historical overview. In the popular mind and in the minds of most scholars, the origin of Christianity is clear. The religion began as a movement of lower-class followers of a radical Jewish teacher during the first century of the the Common Era. For a number of reasons, however, I did not share this certainty. There were many gods worshipped during Jesus' era that are now seen as fictitious, and no archaeological evidence of his existence has ever been found. What contributed most to my skepticism was that at the exact time when the followers of Jesus were purportedly organizing themselves into a religion that urged its members to turn the other cheek and give to Caesar what is Caesar's, another Judean sect was raging a religious war against the Romans. This sect, the Sicarii, also believed in the coming of of a Messiah, but not one who advocated peace. They sought a Messiah who would lead them militarily. It seemed implausible that two dramatically dramatically opposite forms of Messianic Judaism would have emerged from Judea at the same time. This is why the Dead Sea Scrolls were of so much interest to me, and I began what turned into a decade-long study of them. Like so many others, I was hoping to learn something of Christianity's origins, in the 2,000-year-old documents found at Corel. I also began studying the other two major works from this era, the New Testament and Wars of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, an adopted member of the imperial family. I hoped to determine how the scrolls related to them. While reading these two books side by side, I noticed a connection between them. Certain events from the ministry of Jesus seem to closely parallel episodes from the campaign of the Roman emperor Titus Flavius as he attempted to gain control of the rebellious Jews in Judea. My efforts to understand this relationship led me to discover the amazing secret 
That is the subject of this book. This imperial family, the Flavians, created Christianity. And even more incredibly, they incorporated a skillful satire of the Jews in the Gospels and in War of the Jews to inform posterity of this fact. The Flavian dynasty lasted from 69 to 96 of the Common Era, the period when most scholars believed the Gospels were written. It, consi it consisted of three Caesars, Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, Flavius Josephus, the adopted member of the family who wrote Wars of the Jews, was their official historian. The satire they created is difficult to see if we were not otherwise if it were not otherwise that it would not have remained unnoticed for two millennium. However, as readers may judge for themselves, the path that the Flavians left for us is a clear one. All that is really needed is to walk down this path as an open mind. But why, then, has the satirical relationship between Jesus and Titus not been noticed before? The question is not especially apt in light of the fact that the works that reveal the satire, the New Testament, and the histories of Josephus are perhaps the most scrutinized books in literature. That's the gist of it, by the way, and we're going to get into the particular examples that he uses in, in Josephus, primarily the Jewish war, not so much the antiquities. Um, but uh, let me mention a few things. That's the gist of this, is that Josephus has, uh, and his outline of the, of the Jewish war is, uh, and that the Gospels, Parallel, Titus, he was the son of Vespasian, Titus's war against the Jews, in which he destroyed Jerusalem and virtually exterminated most of the Jewish people, most of the people in Judea when he did that, and then went on, uh, he went on to finally terminate the Jewish war at Masada. And, uh, and all of this, of course, happened long after Jesus was was uh, supposedly crucified, if he ever was, we don't know, at least, at least long after his supposed death. But um, the point we want to make here, really, uh, is that uh, the timeline, timeline simply does not back up this, this theory. Uh, long before, long before, uh, uh, Vespasian and, and, and Titus came on the scene. Nero was was the emperor in Rome, and Christianity was already very, very powerful in Rome. It was a real threat, and according to the other Roman historian who was not the member of the Flavian family, that was Tactus, uh, they, they were a large sect, and Nero, of course, blamed them for the fire that destroyed a, uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of Rome, and and he actually did persecute them and attempt to stamp out the Christian sect. So uh, this idea that uh, that uh, the Christ, that Christianity didn't didn't get started until until uh, um, after Vespasian and 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 Titus had had uh, conquered Judea that 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 is absolutely untrue. Uh, and of course, the problem with with Atwell in his book is that he he holds off a timeline so that you can uh, you can put Nero and and you know Augustus and Nero and then and then uh, and then then the interim and then and then finally finally you get Vespasian after Pilate after Pontius Pilate you get. Uh, and he wasn't the emperor; he was the he, he was the uh, uh, patriarch of Judea. But but uh, finally, after Pontius Pilate fails uh, to pacify Judea, that's when Vespasian comes in. He wasn't emperor yet, but he comes in as the general with his son as his as his second in command, and they come into Judea. And that's when the, when the Flavian dynasty gets started. And the so the timeline just doesn't fit. 
and Atwell uh, pursues all, all of this tr- proof of his, which through the whole book, and then finally on page 320, he finally gives you a timeline, and so you can, if you're a perceptive reader, you can you can put the timeline together and realize that uh, if you if you want to see through his uh, his web of of um, well, what is what is a very very clever fake news, and I, and I use that term to begin with. He's kind of he's kind of gaslighting us, you know, into thinking that uh, that that, uh, um, that that the Flavians uh, wrote the script here for for Jesus. Um, and when you realize that uh, Nero was way way back, way back, uh, almost 40 years before before the Flavians came on the scene. Then you know that this can't possibly be the case. Anyway, um, it's unfortunate that the scholarly community has has written a, a number of uh, very scathing reviews on this book, but they don't address the issues. They just all they do is they complain about Atwell not being an academic, and they huff and puff about him not being scholarly, and. Uh, and of course, they 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 do have something of a point here. Atwell, Atwell's not a biblical scholar. He he he's a computer businessman, and and he was raised. And this is really really strange. He was raised in Japan during World War II, in Japan in a Jesuit monastery school, if you can imagine that. And that's where he got grounded in all of this biblical study in Japan during World War II, and in a Jesuit school. So, um, so he is, he of course is not a scholar, and and so most of the reviews have not really dealt with his issues, with the issues he brings up, and that that is unfortunate because uh, we we're going to read his evidence. And and uh, and you'll see when we read it, you'll see that he really does have have a point. He really has has a point that that the Flavians did certainly have an influence on Roman Christianity, and and the, the Christianity that that finally came into power after Constantine. And let me mention something else right now while we're while we're talking about Constantine. Constantine had this vision of the cross. In hoc signo winkies, you know, with this sign we'll conquer. And that after that, the cross became bitter with the Christians. But before that, they, the cross was not a, not really a Christian symbol. Uh, in fact, in fact, as a matter of fact, the, the Romans really didn't crucify people; they staked them. They put up a big a big pole, and they and they 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 nailed them up to this pole. Uh, but they didn't have a cross member on them, and so they didn't actually. The crucifixion, even though it was referred to as often as that, and and many people in the ancient world did it, uh, including the Carthaginians. Carthaginians used to crucify lions. They they crucified lions and stuck up uh, these poles outside of Carthage with a lion hung up on them. And they they figured that the dead lion would scare the other lions away because that. They didn't know much about lions, but uh, uh, anyway, the Romans may very well have have uh, used uh, uh, used Flavius's uh, 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 Josephus's uh, evidence as uh, in the in the course of the Gospels. And two weeks ago, we reviewed another book, uh, the Baal Theory of Christianity, by by Glenn Young. And he uh, he talk, talks a lot about uh, about the, the human sacrifice in relation to Christianity, and and that's of course what we're dealing with here. And the most compelling evidence that um, that Atwell presents in Josephus is this business of the the, the Jewish mother, the Jewish mother whose name is Mary, and Mary, according to uh, Atwell means rebellious woman. Uh, the this this uh, this rebellious woman in 
in Jerusalem at the time of the siege. And by the way, and the siege of Jerusalem, uh, Titus, Vespasian's son, was the general for the siege. And Titus built, he built an earthwork wall all the way around Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem with this big earthwork wall. And he and sealed everybody into the city. And at that time, that was the time of Passover, and and, uh, and devout Jews from all over Judea had come into Jerusalem. So he had all the devout Jews uh, in Jerusalem sealed up in the city, and he was literally starving them to death. And uh, you remember when he came to Masada, he built that big ramp, you know, in Masada. But, uh, but this time he built a wall. And anyway, um, inside the city, the people were starving. And this is what Josephus uh, wrote. It is horrible to speak of it and incredibly incredible when heard. While I would go, I'm going to relate a matter of fact, the like of which Mo history relates. I might not seem to deliver what is so pretentious to posterity. I have innumerable witnesses to it in my own age. But the most important play on words found within Mary's address to her miserable child were in he states, Be thou a fury to those seditious varlets and a myth to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of the Jews. Now, she has done is cut her own infant son in half and and offered him as a myth to the world, according to Josephus. And then she offers the rest of him to her neighbors who have invaded her house looking for food. And they refuse. And then but she has called her son a myth unto the world and a sacrifice. And then so she eats half half of her son and offers the rest, but they refuse it. And Atwell says, I have suggested above, this quote seems to have been invented by Josephus. Not only were there no witnesses to hear them, but they are on the face dubious. Would a mother who has eaten, eaten her son really wish him to become a myth to the world? Further, taken literally, Mary's words seem incoherent. Why would a child become a fury to the varlets, that is, the Jewish rebels against Rome, by being cannibalized? And why would this complete the calamities of the Jews? Within the context of a lampoon of Jesus, the meaning of the phrase becomes clear. The author is not merely ridiculing Christ. He is stating that the spread of the myth of Christ that the Jews killed will complete the destruction of the Jews. This interpretation indicates that Christianity was designed to promote anti-Semitism, a concept that is plausible historically. A cult that produced anti-Semitism would have helped Rome prevent the Messianic Jews from spreading their rebellion and punishing them by poisoning their future. The New Testament has numerous passages that seem deliberately intended to cause Christians to hate Jews. And though Christian apologists have attempted to explain away such passages, there are clear examples of this technique throughout the New Testament. The most famous occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, which Pilate, having washed his hands of the blood of this just person, tells the Jews that they, not the Roman authorities, must be the ones responsible for crucifying Christ. The Jews responded thus, all the people answered and said, His blood will be on us and upon our children. Now, this is ridiculous, by the way. Pilate, Pilate, would, Pilate would say this, not the people, because people, people don't curse themselves, and they don't curse their children. But, somebody, but other people would do that. Pilate would certainly do that. His blood will be upon you and upon your children. Some scholars have speculated that later Christian redactors inserted the anti-Semitic passages in the New Testament out of hatred for the people who had crucified their Savior. My interpretation of the 
passage above suggests the opposite. The New Testament was designed to promote anti-Semitism. Well, that's Atwell's opinion, anyway. But that, so that's that business of the the woman sacrificing her child and calling him a myth unto the world. That's the big one. And of course, when I read that, the first thing I did was go go for my copy of of the, the Jewish War by Josephus, which I have as a result of my of my wife's mother, who, who was a much better Bible scholar than I will ever be. And anyway, I so I went, I went, I went running for uh, for Grandma's Josephus's uh, 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 The Jewish War, and sure enough, it's in there word for word, myth unto the world and everything. So so Atwell is not exaggerating. Now, there's another. There's another parallel, which is a bit more far-fetched than, you know, this 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 one of the of the the cannibalized baby uh, being the source of the Eucharist. That that's that is very 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 provoking. And scholars, you know, when they review the they review this book, most of the scholars won't even deal with it. They 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 won't discuss this at all. It's like it's like uh, scientists with Galileo. You know, Galileo says, "Look at my tube." <laughs> they won't look at his tube. They just they just tell him he's a heretic. You know, we won't, we we're not going to look in your damn tube. You're a heretic. And it's the same thing here with uh, with Adwell. He's showing them this, but they won't look at it. You know, or they won't deal with it. Well, here's his, here's the second one: the demons of Gadara. When I first came across the passage from the wars of the, of the Jews describing a son of Mary whose flesh was eaten and recognized its linkage to Christianity, I was perplexed. The more I studied the passage, the more I was convinced that it had been deliberately created. But as more than just a lampoon of Jesus, it appeared to be a disclosure of a different origin of Christianity than the one that had passed down to the modern era. That is that Christianity had been created to be a calamity upon the Jews. I began to analyze wars of the Jews to determine if it contained any other passages that would be seen as satirical disclosures regarding this different version of Christianity of its origin. It was then that it became clear to me that there were numerous parallels between the storyline of Jesus and the ministry of Titus' campaign through Judea, and that among them, was their similar experience near the town of Gadara. Each of the synoptic gospels tells the story of Jesus coming to Gadara, where he meets a man who is possessed by demons. In Matthew, Jesus meets two demon-possessed men at a point I shall return to. In the versions of the story found in Mark and Luke, when Jesus asks the demon his name, the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. I found it interesting that the demon would choose to describe himself and his cohort as a component of, of an army. <clears throat> Remembering that the location where Jesus asked his disciples to become fishers of men was used to create a peri periodic linkage to an event that occurred at the same location in Wars of the Jews. And I wondered whether to use the word legion by the demon might be satirically related to an event in Wars of the Jews that occurred that occurred near Gadara. The passage in Mark describing the demonic of Gadara tells Jesus the encounter with a man possessed with numerous demons. These demons leave the man at Jesus' bidding and then enter into a herd of swine. Once the swine are possessed by the demons, they rush wildly into the sea and they drown. The passage does not reveal what happened to the demons after the swine drowned. Note that in the New Testament, unclean spirits are synonymous with devils and demons. And, they, and this is quoting Josephus. And they came over onto the other side of the sea into the country of the, of the, of the Gadarians. And when... He was come out of the ship 
immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with, with an unclean spirit. This is quoting the gospel. Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, not with chains, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, and neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried in a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou tormentest me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, Say, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he, be and he besought him much that he would not send them out, out of the country. And now there was were nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep pace into the sea, and they were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. And they, and they that fed the swine and, and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what, was, what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus and see him that, and see him that was possessed with the devil and saw him that was possessed with the devil. And the region sitting and clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things, the great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. In the Wars of the Jews, there is a short chapter that describes the Battle of Gadara. The chapter begins with a description of how John rose to power as a leader of the rebellion. And by this time, John was beginning to, uh, to tyrannize. And now some sub, sub, some submitted to him out of their fear of him, and others out of their goodwill to him. For he was a shrewd man to entice men to him, both by deluding them and putting and putting sheets upon them. Nay, many there were that just that they should be safer among themselves, if the causes of their past insolent actions should not be reduced to one head and not to, to, to show great a many. Thus, Josephus described John as a tyrant and one of those insolent actions that may, that may have reduced Josephus. Josephus next describes the Sakari zealots. The most militant faction of the Jewish rebellion, whom he states, were able to undertake great, greater matters because of the sedition and tyranny that John had created. <clears throat> There was a fortress of great strength not far from Jerusalem called Masada. Well, this is getting, getting further beyond it, but, but the gist of it is that he, he is essentially saying, Josephus is saying, and Atwell is interpreting uh, this whole business of Jesus um, exercising uh, the, the spirits into the swine is a rerun of the Battle of Gadara, because in the Battle of Gadara, uh, the Romans drove uh, drove the zealots in, in, into a river and drowned them, and and uh, the zealots are described as demons by Josephus anyway. So that was what, and I think that that that's a weaker, it's 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 a weaker parallel than uh, than than the one with Mary uh, with Mary and the and the Eucharist, but but uh, it, it it might it might serve as a parable. As a parable, there are others. Now there's another one in here that's kind of humorous, and uh, I'll read this other parallel. And the funny thing about this parallel is that it is 
it is cited in Josephus right after after the testimonium. Now, Josephus' testimonium on Jesus is, is frankly the only historical evidence of Jesus that we have. Uh, and this was written, of course, uh, it was written way, way after Jesus had died. Uh, here's the testimonium and the two odd tales that follow it. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. And he drew over him both many of the, and he drew unto him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, and he was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him did not at first forsake him. For he appeared to, to them alive on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold those and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not, are not extinct to this day. Now, that that was the testimonium, and that's, that's Josephus. And I used to think that this, that this Joseph Pantera thing, you know, the Roman soldier that supposedly uh, was the father of Jesus, I used to think that was that was Josephus. No, it wasn't. It it was a it was a version of the Talmud, uh, and the, the Roman soldier uh, uh, Joseph Pantera, whose whose tomb, by the way, is in Germany. Uh, that that was that story uh, that Jesus was the bastard son of a Roman soldier. That 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 story came from from the Talmud. It did not come from Josephus. About the same time, there was another sad calamity uh, that put the Jews into disorder, and a certain shameful practice has happened about the Temple of Isis that was in Rome. And I will now first take notice of the wicked attempt about the Temple of Isis, and will then give an account of the Jewish affairs. There was at Rome a woman whose name was Paulina, one who, on account of the dignity of her ancestors and by the regular conduct of a virtuous life, had a great reputation. And she was also very rich, and all those she had was of, of a beautiful countenance. And in that flower of her age, wherein women are most gay, yet did she lead a life of great modesty. And she was married to Saturnius, one that was in every way answerable to her and an excellent character. Odysseus Mundus fell in love with this woman, and he was a man very high in the equestrian order. And as she was of too great dignity to be caught by presence, and had already rejected them, though they had been sent in a great abundance, he was still more inflamed with love to her, and so much that he promised to give her 200,000 Attic drachmae for one night's lodging. Mm. And when this would not prevail upon her, and that he was not able to bear his misfortune in his amours, he thought of the best way to famish himself to death for want of food on account of Paulina's sad refusal. And he determined with himself to die in such a manner, uh, and he went on with his purpose accordingly. Now, Mundus had a freedwoman who had been made free by his father, whose name was Ide, one skillful in all sorts of mischief. And this woman was very much grieved by the young man's resolution to kill himself, or he did not, or he did not conceal his intentions to destroy himself from others, and made him to hope by some promises she gave him that he might obtain a night's lodging with Paulina. And then he joked, joyfully hearkened to her entreaty. She said she wanted no more than 50,000 drachma for the entrapping of the woman. So when he had 
encouraged the young man and got as much money as he required. He did not take the same methods as had been taken before because she perceived that the woman was by no means tempted by money. But as she knew that she was very much given to the worship of the goddess Isis, she devised the following stratagem. She went to some Isis priests, and upon the strongest assurances of concealment, she persuaded them by words, but chiefly by the offer of money, of 25,000 drachma in hand, and as much more when the thing had been done, and told them of the passion of the young man and persuaded them to use all means possible to beguile the woman. And so they were drawn in and promised to do so, and by that large sum of gold they were to have, and according to the oldest of them, went immediately to Polina, and upon his admittance, he, and upon his admittance, he desired to speak with her by, by herself. And when that was granted, he told her that he was sent by the god Anubis, who was fallen in love with her, and enjoyed her, enjoined her to come to him. And upon this, she took the message very kindly, valued herself greatly upon his condensation of upon his condescension of Anubis, and told her husband that she had a message sent and was to sup and lie with Anubis. So he agreed and let her and let hers acceptance of the offer as fully satisfied with the chastity of his life. And accordingly she went to the temple and she and she slept there and it was the hour to go to sleep. The priest shut the doors of the temple and when the whole and then the holy part of it the lights were also put out and then did Mundus leap out for he was hidden therein and did fall Enjoy, fall upon her, enjoying her who was at his service all night long, as supposing he was God. And when he was gone away, which was for those priests who know, knew nothing of the stratagem, was pulling along with her husband and told her how the god Anubis had appeared unto her among her friends. Also, she declared her but a great value she put upon this favor. This is quite a ribald story, you know, and um, it'd make make a great it'd make a great partial play. Who partly disbelieved the thing when they reflected upon his stature, and partly were amazed by it, as having no pretense for not believing it, when they considered the modesty and dignity of a person. But now, on the third day after that, what had been done. Mundus met Paulina and said, Nay, Paulina, thou hast saved me 200,000 drachma, which some thou mightst have added to thine own family, yet hast thou not failed to be at my service in the manner I invited thee. As for, as for the reproaches thou hast laid upon Mundus, I value not the business of names, but I rejoice in the pleasure I reaped when I did while I took myself while I while I took to myself the name of Anubis. And when he said this he went his way. But now <laughs> but now she became, began to come to her senses of the grossness of what she had done and rent her garments and told her husband of the horrid nature of the wicked contrivance and prayed him, and prayed him not to neglect to assist her in the case, and so he discovered the act. So he discovered the fact of the emperor. Whereupon Tiberius inquired into the matter thoroughly by examining the priests about it, and ordered them to be crucified, as well as Ildi, the woman who had the occasion of their perdition, and 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 who had contrived the whole matter, which was so injurious to the woman, and he demolished the temple of Isis. And he gave order that her statue should be thrown in the river Tiber, while he only banished Mundus, but did not, but did no more to it, <clears throat> because he supposed that what crime he had committed was done out of the passion of love, and those were the circumstances which concerned the Temple of Isis, and there the inquirers 
occasioned by our priest. And I now return to the relation of what happened time uh, to the to the Jews in Rome, as I formally told you I would. Now, this is the this is a very fun story. I mean, this you know you could just you could just visualize this guy coming in with this dog-headed mask with with the girl. You know, oh yeah, the God of Anubis. And, and he, <laughs> and, but then, like a darn fool, he goes and tells her, you know, oh yeah, I had fun with you while I was while I was putting on the dog. You know. <laughs> And, and ends up getting banished and, and everything else. It's, it's a fun story, but I don't know what what, what it has to do with uh, uh, with with the, with the story of Jesus. I I frankly don't. But but it certainly is, as I say, it certainly is entertaining. But anyway, um, as I said, the big problem here with this with this book with his thesis is Nero. He does not deal with Nero. And not only that, he doesn't deal, he mentions Hippolytus once and he mentions Arrhenius once, but he doesn't deal with any of the, uh, any of the, uh, the heresies. And, and, and he does not deal with Gnostic Christianity at all. And many of the early sects, the early Christian sects, were, were, more, were more Gnostic than uh, than, they, than they were either Hermetic or Neoplatonic, uh, and and of course Christianity was Stoic. If you if you want to really really pin a a philosophy on it, it was Stoic. Uh, that's pacifistic. And uh, one of the things that we should also really really consider is that Jesus. According to uh, Robert Graves and and, uh, and and Raymond, who wrote the Herodian Messiah, Jesus really was the King of the Jews on the in the Herodian line, and he really was a Roman citizen. And Pilate, Pilate, if he had sense enough uh, and had time enough, he could have. He could have made Jesus king of the Jews, and that really would have would have pacified Judea in the name of the Romans. But unfortunately, in order to do that, Pilate probably would have had to had to go sail back to Rome himself in order to do that, uh, uh, because he and if he'd left and if he'd left Palestine at that time. When he came back, they would have the, the zealots probably would have torn down his palace, and 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 the Romans would have had to invade anyway. So, uh, when Jesus's cousin Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of Galilee, and that's where Jesus was raised in Galilee, and that was more of a Canaanite, more Canaanite than Jewish, uh, and Jesus. Uh, Jesus was in the lowest anyway, and, and but Herod Antipas, who was a Herodian, but he was he was a he was a Yahwehist uh, Judean, and and but still a Herodian. He actually, and it's in the Bible, he offered Pilate a ten drachma gold a 10 gold drachma bribe to crucify Jesus. Rather than, you know, rather than sail back to Rome and go through all the rigmarole to get to get Jesus, uh, you know, certified uh, as, as the king of the Jews, uh, he accepted the bribe and turned and, and, uh, and crucified or put Jesus up on a pole and and put a sign on over on top of the pole that here's the king of the Jews. Yeah, that that's probably what really happened. And uh, the problem here is that then later, later the Romans naturally, that when the, the time the Flavians got in uh, into power, they regretted. They they looked back with hindsight and 
they certainly must have realized, oh, boy, we had our chance with, with Pilate. We had our chance, but uh, we blew it. So let's, let's then, then they, they very well may have influenced uh, doing the Gospels because, of course, eventually Christianity did serve the Romans. And, and uh, as I say, we didn't get across until Constantine. But uh, uh, anyway, the, this book is certainly needs to be read. It certainly needs to be read. And and you can't deny you can't deny the the things that that Atwell has suggested. I just really wish that he had that he had somehow put his timeline earlier on in the book and explained that really uh, there were and, and just so the lay reader, you know, there's somebody some people will read this book, and I imagine a lot of people have read this book just because. Adwell has a little cult going now. He actually, he, uh, and he's he's influencing people. People are even questioning. There are people even questioning whether whether Nero ever ever persecuted the Christians, and and saying that Tactus, the real Roman, the real loyal Roman historian Tactus, who wrote during Nero's time, that that he that he was phony. And that's all as a result of Atwell. Atwell's been at this now since 2011. He's having seminars and everything, and he's got a cult going. But a lot of people read his book without ever realizing, whether they're reading it, and ever realizing that the Christians were swarming all over Rome uh, in the days of Nero. So, as I say, the book has certainly deserves to be read, but I would also recommend that you read Along with it, you read uh, you read Raymond's book, The Herodian Messiah, and you get a you get a more factual a more factual picture of what was really going on, and uh, and so that that's about all we have to say about uh, about uh, Mr. Atwell. Very interesting book, very interesting information, and certainly to be read and and certainly to be considered. And uh, I think I think some academics some academics have uh, have egg on their face for not dealing with this the way they should have in a scholarly manner, because just because the man doesn't have a PhD in 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 patristics, uh, yeah, Joe, <laughs> just because he doesn't have a PhD in patristics, that doesn't mean he has raised some good points, and you should treat. You should treat him in a scholarly manner. So, uh, Mr. Adwell, we appreciate your book. And uh, and oh, well, I let, let's let's mention uh, one other thing. He also relates in here the parallels between Jesus and Moses, and he draws a bunch of parallels. And he does this like. Uh, you know, on the model of uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces, which Joseph Campbell got from Lord Raglan, and, and um, he he mentions the parallels between Jesus and Moses. Well, yeah, there are. And but uh, you know, I'm a I'm a Gnostic Christian myself, yeah, a Valentinian Gnostic Christian, and and. We realized, Gnostics realized, that Jesus was a spiritual being. And there are a lot of Gnostics, not myself, but there are a lot of Gnostics that believe that Jesus didn't physically exist at all, that he was, that he was a, a, a sort of a, an astral form. That he was, and that's the next thing to saying he was a myth. When you say somebody was an illusion, then you're also... Laying the ground and saying, yeah, he's a myth. Well, all right. Moses. Moses is a myth. Solomon was a myth. Jesus was very probably a myth. And and Merlin was a myth. Arthur was a myth. But and Moses Josephus Josephus is our best is our best source of Moses being a myth. Because Josephus recounts the Egyptian, 
the Egyptian version of Moses, Manetho. And according to Manetho, the Hyksos came in with Joseph, and they went out with Moses. And and that, that's the Egyptian version of the Hyksos. They invaded. They didn't... They, they didn't sell Joseph into slavery in, in Egypt, and then he rose to, to being the, the, the grand vizier of the pharaoh. That, that isn't what happened, according to, according to the Egyptians. According to the Egyptians, they, he came in with the, with the Hyksos, the, the, the shepherd kings, and they took over Egypt, and they lorded it over the Egyptians. The Egyptians finally rose up against them and threw them out. And they threw them out, and that was the Exodus. And they went out with Moses. And uh, so, the 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 Bible version of Moses is probably just as mythical as the Bible version of King Solomon, because he, King Solomon was a pagan king. He was he was an Elois, and he he was certainly had nothing to do with Yahweh. So the idea that uh, the, the way the Bible is written, Solomon is mythical. He's mythical. And, and of course, as we know, Solomon's mythical, and, and very probably and very possibly Jesus is mythical. And, so it, and if you're a Gnostic Christian, you really, you really don't have to, have to have a historical, physical Jesus. We have... We have a beautiful mythical Jesus, and we don't. And we don't. We don't really need. We don't really need uh, a factual story. We have a myth, and and same thing with uh, with with uh, with the Masons. They myth of Hiram a myth of Solomon. The Masons have a myth, and and uh, and the Volunteerian Christians we have a beautiful myth, and so I just want to. And if we have to have a physical, a physical Jesus, if we have to have one, we can always fall back on Simon Magus. <laughs> but and that's that that's a whole another Gnostic, a whole another Gnostic thing. But anyway, this book, uh, Caesar's Messiah, I said it should be read along with the Herodian Messiah by Raymond, is certainly valuable, and and. That's all for this week, and we'll see you next week with another with another hermetic mystery. And until then, good magic.